Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we continue our in-depth conversations about race and racism. We're talking with Ray Freeman, Vice President of the Warrensville Heights School Board just outside of Cleveland and a Regional Representative to the National School Board Association. Joining us for this series is our co-host, Judge Gail Williams-Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court. We discuss racism towards black students in schools across the nation and the achievement gap that black students suffer compared to whites. Ray, for our listeners out there, they, they may have heard the term achievement gap, but not really totally know what it is. Could, can you define that for us? Yeah, achievement gap in public education, you want most of your children in whatever grade to be a grade ahead. So achievement gap is like if we have a first grader that uh, should be reading, and we want them normally reading at a second grade level, but um, the gap is between the, the first grader and the second or third grader they're not adequate to actually read on that certain level, to have math on that certain level, to even understand understand phonics or the concept on a, a different level. So the gap is what we try to do in public education is try to bring a student up to that level or even a grade higher than their actual grade they're in. So in the disparities of America, we have a gap in our education learning levels. And that gap is caused by what? There's many factors that go into that, but it's um, actually, uh, it could be the uh, actual education instruments or the tools that the um, teachers have in the classroom. It could start from kindergarten or start from pre-K. If you didn't have your child in a structured educational basis type of organization for they can grasp and be around other uh, students. Um, you have to start reading to your children. You would have to expose them to word or phonics, like I said, and just make them learn on a level. So when they do go to a, a actual structured setting in a classroom, that they would know how to compete with their uh, actual counterpart classmates. So let me ask how much of achievement gap in public education is race-based and how much of it is economic-based? Well, when you look at it, they're both almost parallel. 
So when you look at the economic gap, the uh, economics of whatever zip code you're in across this United States is always going to have a factor. But race is one of the defining factors because when we started in education in a public sector, um, most of the black and brown children never had maybe the actual uh, structure or the teachers or um, different type of uh, different type of uh, um, indicators that could actually compete on the level of maybe their white or, or even Asian counterparts. So um, the race plays a big factor in education because we, we don't have everything we need in certain zip codes in America. And, you know, there's been studies on that and they look at it and they said, OK, say, for instance, in Ohio and it just take a uh, zip code. So in Warrensville Heights, where I represent, our zip code is four, four, one, two, eight. If you plug that in on an educational map on a national level, they'll say, OK, that's a D uh, actual school district. But if you put and say like a Shaker or Beachwood put four, four. 120 in and they said oh yeah that that's a a school district or they had all of the actual um all of the actual um instruments to be on that level and those students just because of that zip code can learn better or faster than the warrensville hikes zip code of 44128 where does the achievement gap really present itself as as being really problematic is it in retention of students in the educational public education process, or is it uh, when a student perhaps tries to go to college? Uh, where does it evidence itself primarily? That gap would show between pre-K and third grade. You'll know as an educator or as a superintendent or a principal in a building where your student's gap is. And that gap starts in that early learning. When a child is born and when you look at a child from, uh, say, day one to actually when they're six years old, they grasp the most in their capacity of learning. So the gap would start if to say in, in many cases, parents don't have the economics to, you know, have them in some type of organization or uh, a pre-K school or anything like that. So that gap starts from birth. I mean, you have to have an involved parent or involved grandparent or someone around that's very involved in education to maybe boom, strike a match or just light up a, a little light bulb in their head. Like, ooh, I love reading. Reading is fun. So um, I think the gap starts from birth. But but when you have either a single family parent uh, where uh, uh somebody is working all the time, or even when you have two parents in a household and multiple jobs, uh, that's what you're talking about, the, the lack of opportunity to, to get that early education. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. When you have just a single parent and maybe mom or dad can't read to you nightly or, you know, sit down after dinner and just read a book or, you know, just talk to them and, and make them read back and try to understand the words in any type of um, reading uh, material. So you're right, though. So let me toss this out to both of you. Uh, how much progress have we made in schools over the last 30 years? It seems to me that some of the things that Ray's been talking about you know, have been around since I was a young boy. And it doesn't seem like we're making much progress. 
I, am I too pessimistic about this? I would say that I, I'd like to believe that we have made some progress, but I think the reality of it, quite frankly, is that at best we've made baby steps. And I see that because you know we've easily, as um, as Ray said, we've labeled um, entire communities early on, um, predominantly black and brown communities. Um, we've not invested appropriately in those communities. I mean, you know, in certain states, you know, there have been all out battles and fights and quite frankly, resistance to how schools are funded. I mean, to the point where literally you've had courts to say, you know, this is, you know, the appropriate or inappropriate funding formula for public schools only to have that completely disregarded, to have that revisited again, only to have that disregarded. And the biggest losers are not the affluent communities because Many people in those communities can afford alternatives, private schools or other boarding schools or other environments for their children. The biggest losers are the children whose parents and grandparents, because remember, just as Ray said, you know, you have some families where, you know, you've got mature generations that are now on their second round of parenting. They don't have a choice. And so you've got grandparents that are raising you know, grandchildren or great-grandchildren. They don't have the choice of sending their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or even their children to private school, boarding school, or the like. They're stuck, if you will, in their current environment. They've been redlined. They're not going to get any more funding. Their books are outdated. Their schools are deteriorating. Their teachers are modestly paid. Their young black men or young black boys are already labeled problem children. The response is not to figure out how to best educate them, but how to harshly penalize them. And so while we're talking about a, the, the achievement gap, we might, might as well already talk about how we've created, you know, almost a pipeline to prison because for so many of them, you know, we've told them early on as well. You know, a rite of passage is figuring out how when how early you're going to do your first stint in jail, straight out of school, if you even finish school, because that's also a marker. We've already told you know young black and brown children that you know what graduating isn't really the thing you have to achieve, while their non-minority counterparts are expected to do that. And Ray, I don't know if that's something that that you you know, believe or, or have seen, but I certainly see that. And I see that in, in some of our youngest men and women, and it's really disheartening. Yeah. To um, piggyback off what you're saying, judge and the prison, the pipeline is true. And it's been around. Um, he was saying 30 years, it's probably been around longer than that. And when the increase of um, actually some of these areas and education, wasn't uh, actually the forefront You've seen more black males go to jail. I mean, it was for other reasons. But one of the factors when black men go to jail is their education level. And if they don't find a way to actually think that education will take them in a status or, you know, if they have a family, can I provide for them? 
Can I provide for myself? Can I, you know, have uh, the actual uh, education to move in a different direction? So what happens a lot of times, especially in the, uh, I would say the late 60s or early 70s, a lot of those areas, they gave up. They gave up on the black family. It was a lot of trauma. They seen a lot of um, domestic abuse in some of those areas in the, um, er- well, we call them urban areas now, but some was uh, blatantly the ghetto. So um, education wasn't a factor. And when that occurred, you've seen a lot of population of drugs, drug infested areas. You've seen a lot of kids not getting that higher education. Some did, but I would say the majority of uh, the black family was torn apart because of education was one factor and it, it led to a lot of things with trauma. And I would agree. I would say education was probably the least important factor. Um, if you think about it, um, if you if you go back to the 60s, you had so many instances where you had a particularly young black men who were actually encouraged to drop out of school because they were encouraged to, you know, do what you can to get a job. School was unimportant. They weren't encouraged to seek professions or at best you could be, you know, maybe an athlete or maybe you could you know, work a factory job or, you know, if you weren't going to be an athlete, you can go to the military. But you certainly weren't encouraged to use, you know, the strongest muscle in your body, which is your brain. And that was sort of the rule of the day in the 60s. And when you talk about, you know, the the almost literal ripping apart of the black family, that is something that, you know, wasn't just endemic, in my view, in the, the 60s. But if you think about how the black family has just struggled to be a united um, network or united um, organism for, you know, for 400 plus years, 401 years now, you know, consider the fact that literally from the time the first slave ship landed in Virginia, the black family was considered, you know, not even a thing of value. Why? Because families were ripped apart. Literally, babies were ripped out of the arms of mothers, sold like they were chairs to a picnic table and, you know, assigned a value so that they could grow up and then they could be, you know, just, you know, worked until death. They Human beings were given away as gifts to other human beings. And so there was no such thing as a black family then. And as time has marched forward, Black families have struggled to exist in the traditional sense of what a family is ever since then, because there was never a value of the Black family then all the way up until now. And now you march forward to exactly what you're talking about. And so what is the thing that we now place value on? Now we tell our young Black men and women, okay, in order to get ahead, you need an education. Well, this was the very thing that Blacks were murdered for. If you were caught looking like you knew how to read, if you were a slave, you were killed. If you even, you know, looked like you could actually formulate words that were on a page, that was something that was so criminal, it could cost you your life. And now we're telling you that this is something you absolutely must do in order to get ahead, which, by the way, you've got to do it twice as good to get half as far because you're competing 
with individuals who are born into a privilege where they don't even have to try hard and they're going to get ahead. That is an unlevel playing field all the way around. We're talking about, I think it's clear, everybody says the way out of poverty, uh, the way past racial discrimination is education. That's said repeatedly. However, if you look at state houses across the country, uh, and Ray can probably talk to this being part of the National School Board Association, if you look at state houses across the country, if you look at state legislatures across the country, we still have incredible disparities in how we fund education. And funding seems to be a key. If you don't have funding to have proper textbooks, the quality teachers, you're not going to get a quality education. So we say education is the way out, but the white power structure doesn't provide any mechanism to support that education. And it doesn't just stop there, Tom. Let me also say, in addition to that, is also paying for teachers to teach. The books don't teach themselves. The buildings don't don't just handle themselves. Everywhere else in the world, teachers are revered as nation builders. They build entire nations by what they do. And I've said this to Ray as well. And that includes not just teachers, school board members, everyone who pours into a kid. They're considered nation builders. I do not believe that we are in a country where we revere our teachers and all of those people who put their hand on the deck to make sure that the next generation of young people actually are pushed forward into whatever profession they want to be in. And we revere those folks who do that as nation builders. I don't think that we make that same investment in them. And until we do, then we're always going to be seen as sort of lagging behind because we've got to honor the folks who are pouring into our our young people. Yeah, I want to just talk about, like Tom just said, the state houses and across uh, the United States. And public education is definitely underfunded. I mean, it it tells in the state of Ohio. And like you said, uh, Judge, the way the mathematics of equating money that goes in certain areas, and like I just uh, indicated to you guys, it's the zip codes, different zip codes in different areas, not getting the actual real estate taxes from some areas is uh, depicted in their equation for the Ohio base actual monies that go into the individual school districts in the, in the different areas. Being on the national school board, I see them from all areas. And I was so surprised last year because I have a, a, probably about 10 or 12 of my good buddies there um, on school boards and presidents of school boards in the state of Texas. And Texas um, from Newsweek is stating that Texas is the worst state for public education. It's the worst state. And it's a large state because in my district alone, I have about 1,800. My buddy's got 200 students, 200,000 students in his area in Fort Worth, Texas. So like Tom said, it's the state house and it's how each individual state funds these different uh, schools. And that's where you're at. I mean, we look at different areas and say I'm in a district, a pretty sized district, maybe 20 or 18,000. And I'm running on a $40 million budget. The state may give them, may give them up to a million dollars. So you're depending on the real estate of the area that you're in to equate some of that coming back to that school district, but not knowing that some of those actual homeowners 
may only be paying or collecting from uh, that area 70%. So if you only get a million from the state of Ohio, you're in an area where your your collection rate is only at 60 or 70%, and you should get another 4 million, but you may get 2 million. So you got to work on funds from a million from the state of Ohio. If you didn't get collection and you're only saying you, you get 60 or maybe even 50%. So if you're supposed to get 4 million from your area, you're only getting uh, 2 million. You have to operate and educate children on that level with outdated equipment and apparatuses. So that's where you're at. And Tom is right. It's across each state house that I see in California. I see it in New Jersey. I see it in Arizona and Georgia and Florida. So, I mean, when I go to these different states and I look and, you know, always ask and, you know, sometimes the treasurer, superintendent or CEOs, they don't like telling that. I was like, what are you uh, running on as a school district? Oh, about 40 million, 50 million. I was like, wow. And what do you get from the state you're in, Texas? Oh, we get about two million. Well, if you got 200,000 kids, two million ain't going to help from the state of Texas. So when you look on the um, News Weekly, I understand why Texas, you know, being a large uh, school district is doing bad as far as rankings because you don't have enough adequate funds to fund even educating children. And so, Ray, can I ask you, do you think in those instances where you've seen that? obviously I wouldn't even call it a trend. It just seems to be the rule of the day. Is it, you know, is it communities that are more impoverished? Is it black and brown communities? I think there's clearly a nexus between, you know, impoverished communities and communities that tend to be highly representative of of people of color that are more disproportionately impacted by that. I would suspect that there is, even though I don't have empirical data to support that, but has that sort of been your experience? Is that yeah, you know, I would think the affluent communities have the money. When we look at a judge across uh, the United States and we look on it on a national level, um, we look and it's predominantly black. It's black actual urban districts that we call urban districts. And um, yeah, they're hit the hardest. The brown is the up and coming population for public education. I mean, um, when we did studies in 2017, their rise in how many uh, actual um, children are in those schools going from um, like down in the south and going across. If you look at Texas, going even across all the way to California, if you just look at that, um, I guess it would be southwestern uh, district. They're the uprising. So they're having more children put in schools. The population is increasing. So their actual um, their actual money is flowing a little bit more than in an urban or a black district. So, um, well, I mean, let me let me bring it back to to finance for a moment. And and if you're got a forty million dollar budget and you're getting a million dollars from the state, we see all over the country school districts with bond levies, uh, bond issues coming up. Uh, that's to provide local support for the schools, be it property tax or otherwise. That seems to put the onus on the neighborhood. And if the neighborhood is impoverished to begin with, it's a losing proposition. Is it not? It is in some areas. Tom, take my own backyard. I'm take Warrensville. So we had a levy last year to build brand new schools. So as of um, as of November of 2019, our bond in the state of Ohio was the highest passed 
bonnet, $68 million to do a um, school, brand new schools. So when you look at that, did it, did it, did it hurt? No, because we were at 77.9% approval of a levy that's never been that high in that, uh, that city ever since I've been born. And I was born in uh, 1964, but I actually uh, been in that uh, actual uh, city since 65. So I was one year old in there. They've never had a, a bond issue that high. What hurts, and you're right, take uh, East Cleveland, Ohio. So if you take East Cleveland, if you try to do a bond in East Cleveland just for maybe $2 million, it would be hard to pass a $2 million bond for education for the East Cleveland School District, because you're right. Um, many of those homeowners and residents are renters. They don't own. Um, what would they have to get? I mean, they could go to the ballot and vote, but you won't see that money equate back into um, East Cleveland school schools to um, pay for different uh, actual um, different uh, items that they may need, Tom. So you're right. So if we take it beyond the the finance and we get into the actual content of education, uh, Judge, are you saying that the content of the education to primarily black inner city or inner suburb schools is inadequate and uh, insufficient compared to the white suburbs? Well, I can tell you never having attended a white suburban school, I can only tell you that I believe the ability for children in urban communities to be able to adequately compete um, once they leave those urban schools and then land in the same colleges, universities, and even begin to compete for some of the same jobs requires a level playing field. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that there's an expectation that by the time you get to college, everyone will know, every, every student there will know how to write, you know, a formal essay or every student will know the basics of algebra, calculus, trigonometry, presumably, that you will have some basics that every student will be prepared to handle, tackle, and address. That can't possibly be the case if every student coming from these different school districts in different areas presumably learning similar things with some nuances, okay, means that disproportionately some students are, again, far behind. There are achievement gaps. Um, and that there is a correlation between their race, um, which also correlates to their economic status, and their lack of ability to compete, ergo, them not being on the same playing field as their white counterparts, once they all land into a similar environment, such as college and then professional environments. There, I, I think that that is the biggest, one of the biggest disservices we are doing to our young people. And I think, you know, Mr. Freeman can probably speak to this best. Now we've got another twist to all of this, which is the impact that charter schools are having 
on our public school systems, because now that I think is impacting the ability to continue to fund public school systems in these urban areas, which is continuing to to take away much needed funds. But Ray, I'll let you speak to that because I think that that brings in just another aspect and perhaps even another challenge that I think for some is maybe not as helpful as as others might believe that it is. Yeah, to, um, to address what you had stated as far as some of the actual uh, districts in a white district versus an urban or what we call black district, there is a disparity. We know that, and like Tom mentioned, but one thing about it, you still have great, great students in that urban black um, school system or district. So if you look at some of the areas like a Rocky River, and Rocky River is a great area. It's, it's got great students and it's highly ranked like in the top eight of Ohio. But you can take that and take a, a, a student from, from a, a Maple Heights or Warrensville and you can compare two students and their 4.0 student we have just as probably many as our 4.0 students. And, you know, we have students in our in our actual system that gets their associate degree as a sophomore, as a junior, and they already got their two year degree. So can a black student compete with that white district student? No doubt about it. No question about it. But like you said, do they have all the opportunities and programs that maybe that white school district has. And I would say no. And what we did, we looked at that. You have to meet these uh, children where they're at. You have to find out and get in their thought pattern of what do you want to teach? We know we're going to teach the, the the four normal subjects that we've been teaching for over a hundred and some odd years in public education, but you want to give that child the right to study and want to be involved in something different than those four subjects of our math, our science. You want to do more than that. And just to speak, like you said, um, Judge, we have to do more as a community. I mean, we have to do more. It just can't be Ray Freeman, National School Board. Woohoo, that sounds great. But what am I going to do with my position that I have? Or what are those parents going to do to help? You know, it takes a village to raise a child. But all of those parents should be involved in Jim, Jane, Jackie should be involved in the education of that child. One thing America got to break away from all children not going to college. So, you know, we have eighteen hundred all when they go to graduate and we normally graduate like one hundred and fifty, one hundred and ten. They're not going all to college. I mean, it sounds great and we want that. But some need to know a trade. Some need to, you know, get into mechanics, get into engineering. They need to do that because their path is different from their counterpart paths. So as far as when I look at it on a national level, we need to do more in education. Yeah, we got to fight race. Yeah, we got to fight economics of, of uh, public education. But we need involvement. We need involvement with the whole community that you live in. It should be, OK, we got reading night at the school. Oh, we can bring our parents Oh, we got this going on on a Saturday. Okay, mom and dad doesn't have to work on Saturday. Yeah, or dad's for donuts. Anything you can do to engage the parents in the education of that child is crucial in their development. I absolutely agree. And what I'll tell you is that that is something that I think that as a black community, we have 
always sort of worked to nurture, which is, you know, the, the village theory that it takes a village to raise a child. And that, you know, oftentimes I think we spoke to this earlier, which is, you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, some children to come from single parent homes. It was not uncommon for what we know to you call kids, latchkey kids, where, you know, you were taught independence very early on. You know, some of them do have the, the honor, the benefit of two parent homes, but both parents may have to work. And so children still learn to be independent. But it is so vitally important that teachers, administrators, school board members and the like know that the education of a child is not the single or sole responsibility of only the person in the classroom or only the people at the schoolhouse, but rather it is a collective effort of the village. Everybody has a part to play. Everyone has a role and a responsibility. When homework is sent home, it means that that's the parent's opportunity to become the teacher at home. And if there's, you know, an older sibling or maybe there's a grandparent, I'll tell you, I've even had, you know, I've had the experience, believe it or not, of having litigants in court only to find out at, you know, the age of 35 or 40 or so, and their parents of multiple children, I'll find out that they desperately want to help their children with their homework. But that's when you find out that the parent maybe didn't finish seventh grade or eighth grade. And so once their child is matriculating into higher grades, they can't help beyond a certain grade level. And that's embarrassing and demoralizing for a parent, even if they have the strong desire to help or to assist their child. They're proud of them. But they, too, struggle with some limitations and you have to figure out how to balance that. I get it that you can have, you know, donuts with the dad because some kids are just happy to have their dads there. But you also have to, I think, balance sometimes these personal sensitivities that you only discover while you're helping the child to get to the next level, which I think is something that we you know, as a black community sort of end up peeling those things back. It's like an onion. You peel those layers back a little bit as a time at a time and you discover those only after you start building those relationships with the parent through the child. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. 
make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let me ask a question about testing because it, it, it comes up anytime you talk about education, national tests, state tests, teaching to the test. What value do these have if we've got schools that are not funded or not supported even at a basic level? It, it seems like the tests are irrelevant. Well, Tom, when you look at the testing in different states, they do it on different actual um, actual uh, standards. And when you look at Ohio, and you're right, the state testing since I've been a school board member has changed twice. So it's changed two times. And now I'm going in my fifth year as a school board, uh, was president and vice president. But you're right. They're changing the testing. But one thing that I know I'm proud of our district and mind you, when I came into public education and as a as an elected official school board member, we had F's. If you look at the history of uh, my school district, we had some F's for like 10 years. But what I kept hearing on a, a national level, not everybody's even doing it now, Tom. They did what is called data assessment. And when you can take the data from your school district, be an urban or a white district, know what everyone's doing in those classrooms as far as the educator, like Judge Gale says, it makes you know how to tune in to the testing. Do we at my at my school district teach those four common subjects and what they're going to get tested on? No doubt about it. But do we expand on that and know that the assessment that these children have coming in two weeks into that school year? So we say we'll start school at the middle of uh, the middle of August. We'll know going into September where all those 1800 children or maybe not so much for the second graders, but we'll know from three, third grade up where each child is testing out at. We need to know and we need to have an intervention to say, OK, well, John is not getting math. OK, we need to uh, put two teachers on him. It can't be just one teacher in the classroom, like Judge says. Then we have to do that and do data assessment on our students and even on the educators. So our educators in our district are data assessed. We know what they're doing weekly and what they're teaching and how they're teaching. It was a common theme with uh, public education and teachers. Oh, I'm just going to teach to whatever that book says. I'm going to teach. No, you have to have a scope and sequence of what you're actually trying to get that student to learn. And do you want to show the Ohio testing and you put it not like it's mandated, Tom, but you put it like it's an exercise, like, hey, let's do this. But it's actually <laughs> it's actually the same test that they will take in April of each year. So we prepare them going into that first day to see. And, and I know we test a lot. I mean, it's not the testing that's needed by the state of Ohio, but we assess it with a scope and sequence to know what they need when they get to that April of that next year to test for the state. I mean, do we need testing? I don't know if we really need it because when I graduated and you graduated and Judge Gale, there may ne never been testing. But now in this day and time, it makes uh, it makes the education department in each of them state feel warm and fuzzy. Like, oh, we tested them. Yeah, they're ready. That doesn't mean they're ready because they, they took your test for two days. 
they may not still be ready. I mean, we have children that graduate from my district. They may not be ready, but they're good test takers. And I have to tell you, Ray, I I would be terribly afraid if I had to take a test today to get out of school. (laughs) I I think I, I might still be there. If I had to test to get out, either that or I, I just might be kicked out because I would not do well. But. Well, I'll tell you, at a college level, I see people all the time that did well on their tests, even did well on their ACTs or their SATs, and can't write a simple paragraph. Uh, and if you have them read something, they have difficulty in comprehension. So I, I'm not sure what we're testing. Maybe just good test takers. Which is entirely possible, which begs the question, again, what exactly are we measuring with with the test itself other than one's ability to, you know, perhaps answer a question or a sequence of questions in a manner that we're satisfied uh, because it doesn't necessarily mean that it prepares you for the real life work. But I'm not here to criticize testing. Um, Obviously, those who are in the profession find there to be some some purpose to it. I'm I'm just saying that worried me. Um, You can best believe I would likely struggle with getting out of high school if I were required to take a standardized test to get out there today. But I did want to round back to something Ray, if you didn't mind, and I I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about your thoughts on the intersection or even the impact of charter schools um, and and what, if any, you think, what, if any, impact you think they might be having on our public school system? Well, just to state for the record, I'm not a fan of charter schools. I'm not a fan of them. But some charters work in some different districts in some different uh, states. Um, uh, Cleveland Municipal uh, School District, they, they use charters and it works very well for them. But in some school districts, the charters, the charters actually, for me, this is just my opinion, they do not take the further step to educate those children. They do the state minimum to, to teach that child and one thing about charters that do do a, a great job, they actually do the um, the 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 circus or the like. Dun, 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 dun. Come to the charter school. They make it look nice and warm and fuzzy. Your student doesn't even have to wear a tie every day. He doesn't have to wear a uniform. They'll do all that to get them in. But when you look at some of the testing, they're getting better. It's not higher than what a public education actually um, school would do. So, I mean, I think in some areas, yeah, it's needed. And um, I had this long talk with um, uh, House Rep. Marsha L. Fudge about it, and she felt charters was good. I mean, that's just her. I mean, she didn't feel it like the um, Department of Secretary um, uh, uh, Betty DeVos. But, you know, when I had a talk with uh, Marsha L. Fudge, she was like, Ray, you know, you're in this and yada, yada. She's like, I think it helps. And I think it does in some areas. I'm not a fan of it. Because I've seen it destroy communities. I've seen it go into communities, even with my district. To have a district almost 2,000 students in like 2012, to have charters come in and four of them, and they're right within less than, I would say, a half a mile around our, our schools to come in and just take and suck out over five, almost 500 students. 
So when you when you have a, a school district well over 2000 and they just come in and they, you know, they say, oh, we're going to do this. We got a little girls program. And that's what we found out with my superintendent, Donald J. Jolly, the second is like we have to have those programs to show those parents. We're not just, hey, you come to school, you got your book. OK, um, we did more in the last two years, giving them Chromebooks, giving them opportunities. We have a um aspiring doctors program. It's not that many eighth graders that can start a path at eighth grade trying to learn to be a doctor. I mean, we have a culinary program. Many um, schools have started it now, but yeah, these kids want to do more than just study their uh, four actual um, items. They want to like, oh, I want to learn to cook. Okay. I want to see a cadaver. I want to see a dead body. I want to know how they do an autopsy. So you have to open up and meet these children where they're at because the education level in America is still stagnated, but you have some great uh, scholars, we call them, or students that's reaching for more, that wants more, that's thirsting for more knowledge. The knowledge we give them is not enough. They want to step beyond. They want to know what a judge does. Let me follow and let me uh, mentor Judge Gale and let me see if I want to go into that profession. So you got to do more for these children. I want to ask this, and that is to build on what Ray just said, and, and Judge, you can jump in here as well, but we're talking about race and racism, and we're talking about expectations of young black men not uh, even graduating, and if they do, uh, not going very far, and certainly a pipeline to prison that we've talked about the four subjects that we've been talking about may not be enough to captivate someone. How do you combat that societal stigma with stimulation of a, of a student and stimulation of them to learn something of value, maybe beyond the four elements that we call basics of education? You know, we've stigmatized a whole group of people. We, we, we have low expectations of a whole group of people. And yet we don't do, I think, anything or very much to stimulate that group of people beyond the basics of education. You know what, though? I, and I, I agree. But I also think that our young people in particular are very curious about um, what they see um, on, a lot of what they see on television is fantasy. And they don't have any way of connecting that to real life. Like, for example, you know, they turn on television, and even in my experience, they see judges on television, but they have never met one in real life. They don't know what that's like. And they certainly have rarely met one that looks like them. They see lawyers, they see doctors, they see all of these professions, but they don't have any way genuinely of connecting that to a real life experience. And so from that, they've got no real reason in their mind to say, okay, well, what's this whole benefit of education? You know, what's that got to do with me? Yeah, that sounds good, looks good, maybe even may work out to be good. But how do I actually get from where I am, particularly if I'm you know, starting off in a 
you know, impoverished neighborhood or community. So where that's supposed to be. And I will tell you, I am probably exhibit A of that. It's interesting that um, Mr. Freeman mentioned East Cleveland, one of the most impoverished suburban, interestingly enough, impoverished suburban communities in Northeast Ohio. I mean, I think that, you know, it's probably got one of, one of, if not the, but one of the largest percentage of the city's population that is on some form of public assistance. Indeed, as you indicated, a large percentage of residents that um, are non-homeowners, thereby signaling clearly um, the level of maybe even personal feelings of investment in the community. Um, Clearly, just, you know, just almost to some degree, the definition of abject poverty. But this is home for me. Growing up, I never, I didn't know what a lawyer was. I had never seen one, touched one, met one ever. And quite frankly, I thought that I was going to be an astronaut when I grew up. Um, It seemed like it was a pretty cool thing. But then I realized I might actually have to master math. And that was problematic. (laughs) And so I abandoned that idea with the quickness. And so then I quickly shifted to wanting to be a ballerina because, you know, every little girl wants to be that, wants to be on stage. And then I was told I would have to wear that tutu regularly. And I have a deep and abiding relationship with food, which made wearing the tutu an impossibility. And when Ray talked about making those additional opportunities for students available, which meant it would cause them to think outside the box, do more, be more, achieve more. That was actually the thing that happened to me. It was almost like he was talking directly to me or or talking about my experience without knowing that. Because that was me in East Cleveland, Ohio at Shaw High School one day on my way to band practice when I had a friend that said, hey, let's stop by this this meeting. I heard that these, these kids are getting together. And I said, where are we going? And she said, hey, I heard something about mock trial. I didn't even know what a mock trial was, much less why I was going. But it was a friend of mine. We were in band together. And I said, "Okay, as long as we don't get in trouble and have to run extra laps at band, because I hated having to run extra laps. And we stopped by mock trial and the rest was history. And from that day in 10th grade until the time I graduated, I competed in every single mock trial competition, my very first year, we came in second in the country. Second, I never competed without winning. And that's when I found my footing. My very first exposure was to lawyers from the ACLU. Actually, Kevin um, O'Neill, who's now a professor over at Cleveland State, was my first um, legal advisor. And that was the first lawyer, real life lawyer with a pulse I'd ever met. I never had a family member. And so I say that to say, I never met a black lawyer. I had never met a black judge. The first judge I ever met was Judge Triazi, who was then a Cleveland Muni judge. Never met a black judge. And I insisted that if that were ever me, I wanted every kid that looked like me to actually see themselves, to see what they could become. Because you can't imagine it if you can't actually see it. And so like Ray said, I want kids to connect the fact that if they can work hard through their education, I'm not an exception. I'm just as much of the rule as they are. 
they can get to where I am because I'm not going to live forever. So the baton has to be passed to someone. But they've got to imagine themselves being here. They've got to see themselves. And yeah, it's hard work, but it's hard work that's worth it. And if they can do this, if I can do it, surely they can, because clearly I can't count. So I couldn't have been an astronaut. I couldn't stop eating. So I couldn't be the ballerina. But clearly I can focus enough to get through school in order to get a role, to be a lawyer and to become a judge. And they could too. And I think that is the linchpin. I totally, uh, Judge uh, Judge Gell, I totally agree with you. Now, when I was like in eighth or ninth grade, I wanted to be an actual English teacher. I wanted to go and I wanted to come back and go to college and be an English teacher. But what happened with me, I was very, very good in athletics, and especially football. So when I was good in athletics and got up to the high school, you know, everybody's like, oh, all these college coaches coming around. But I still wanted to be an English teacher or a lawyer, which is so funny because when I went to college, that's what I wanted to be, a lawyer. And um, I sat on many um, cases, like cases of death and killing. Um, And uh, I always talked to uh, Professor Keller and he's like, oh, yeah, you're one of my best students. You know, the art of persuasion. And I didn't know what he was saying. He's like, you know, you're going to be a lawyer. You have the art of persuading. You know how to persuade people on this campus to follow you, to come to your condo, have parties. So you have the art of persuasion. But uh, I didn't take that route. I took the national football route and uh, I got picked up as a free agent and played a couple years in Denver. And then I played over in Canada at the CFL. But as I come back and uh, Judge Gale, you know this, to have a good friend that's a mayor and probably the tallest um, elected official in America, Brad Sellers, <laughs> as the mayor of Warrenville Heights is seven feet. Me and Brad came in this as a package as is uh, fifth. I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, fifth graders. We both said, hey, man, you know, we're going to go away. And I didn't never think I would come back. His mom was with PTA. Uh, God rest uh, Miss Sellers. But it was the point of what we're going to do. And I was like, I'm not coming back here. You know, I'll probably live in Colorado, get a ranch and some horses. And then I came back and I love this community so much. And Judge Gale can tell you this, but I participate in everything that this city has to offer. If they need a man, hey, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, you want to come? You want to be the plumber? Yeah, you want to do this? And yeah, I'll do it all. Because what I'm trying to give these kids is showing them this guy and this tall fella, seven foot, came back to the community they love and they put in a footprint on that city. I mean, to get uh, inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2018, that's huge for me to have kids at a high school walk better like, hey, they're going Mr. Freeman. Hey, Mr. Freeman, I'm going to be like you. I love to hear that. I want you to be on that wall. I want you to be a Hall of Famer. I want you not even to play sports, but just do something to be an active member in society and do something. And you can say, hey, I came from Warrensville. You know what? I came from Warrensville. So that's what you do is play that role model. But it's all about our legacies. It's about Judge Gale's legacy, my legacy. But we have to do it and show it, like you said, Tom, to black males. The pipeline, you want to cut it off. You want to inspire them. And that takes other people in that city to inspire them. They can't just be inspired by their parents. They can't just be inspired by Ray Freeman, board member. No, they got to be inspired that people I bring them around. Hey, I'm going to bring this seven footer. Oh, he played with Michael Jordan. That can inspire them. The mayor of Sellers has actually called Michael Jordan and have him talk to kids. That's inspiring to talk to Scottie Pippen if that's what they want to do. I mean, we have Judge Gill. I can bring her over. She can talk to those students, 
then maybe some little girl thinks like, I can be Judge Gale. That's what you do. You want to inspire a generation because, I mean, now we look at it. <laughs> I mean, these kids, these kids are getting failed. And, you know, I talked to um, uh, the George F uh, Floyd just got killed. I talked to the actual um, the actual superintendent of Minneapolis School District. He said, Ray, we fell in these kids. And I said, why is that? He says, what have we done in Ohio or Minneapolis? And look at Georgia now all this riding. What are we doing? And I said, you're right. We're not preparing them for things like that. I should be talking to my black boys like if a police officer pull you over, obey his commands. I don't care how he says it to you or you're mad. Do that. I'd rather you come home to your mother at night than die in the streets. And I got to see it on a video. So as, as, a, as a black man in my community, I got to step up. Let me let me talk about uh, a national perspective here for a moment, and and your both of your personal stories were so powerful of giving back to the community and setting examples and having an impact at at the grassroots. But if we take a more national view of systemic racism that is, we all agree is rampant in the education system and creating the and perpetuating the achievement gap. If you had your way and could talk, and I know, Ray, you do, but if you could talk to policymakers in Washington, be they cabinet members or be they senators or congressmen, how do we change this? How do we change it? Tom, for me, and I've been on uh, Capitol Hill, Lisa, once every year since 2016. And I've talked to um, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, and I actually uh, rode back with him. So he had to hear about education. I probably was boring him to death uh, last <laughs> May. But I um, I told him, you know, what I do, what, why is it important? If we look at just one um, program that we have that we're pushing, Tom, and it's IDA. It's the Individual Disabilities Education Act. Now, that's funded across America at 40%. 40%. In some urban districts, like ours is almost 25 or 24% of our 1,800 is special needs. It's special needs. So if you're only going to give these school districts 40%, where are we going to gain that extra 60% to get wheelchairs, to get uh, apparatuses to have them eat or give them the learning tools or have a station right at their uh, wheelchair that they can learn. But the the, the actual Congress uh, men and women, they don't understand that part. They are just like, oh, here they come. They got the red, uh, red uh, scarves. Here come Ray. What are you about to holler about now? It's not I'm hollering about it. If that was your child, Sherrod Brown, if that was your charge, uh, child, uh, Marsha L. Fudge, what would you do? What would you do if you had a child that had learning disabilities and couldn't read, couldn't write, but you love that child, right? So you're going to do everything for that child, right? So do it for other children too. Give us 100% funding by the Congress of Individual Disabilities Education Act. Do that. And that's what I've been fighting with them on Capitol Hill, along with more stuff. Um, but they, they, like you said, Tom, some of them don't get it. Some do. And they feel our pain. But um, like today, I'm on social media heavily. I mean, we still haven't talked about the kids that came over the border in Texas and Arizona. Those kids are still sleeping on aluminum mats. Have we talked about them? 
No, because that's not the narrative now. It's not something to talk about. We want to talk about the the protesting, the riots. Yeah, but what about those babies that's sleeping on cots on that hard concrete floor in Texas? We don't want to talk about it no more. It's not, it's not, it's not pretty. We don't want to talk about it. So we got to do more, but I'm in their ear. And it's funny, Ray, that you took the words like almost literally, I feel like you just sort of reached over and took them right out of my mind because I would say my message is so simple and it's so direct and it's so succinct. And all I would say is fund public education as if the child that attends that school is the baby that you love more than anything in this world. And all that's all I would say is if you had the power to fund it, withhold nothing from that school as if you would withhold nothing from the child you love more than anything in this world. And then you will see, you'll get everything you need for all the babies. Would your message uh, from both of you be the same to state legislatures or to governors? Uh, More funding, more money, or is there something else that can be done to break this systematic racism chain that we've seen? I don't think money solves everything. And so I, I won't be foolish enough to say that you know, you you can throw money at any problem and that solves it because racism is a matter of the heart. And so it's it's not solved merely by nipples and dimes. It is a deep-seated, deeply rooted thing. It does help to address and resolve some of the core issues that we do face and deal with. And, And again, it's one of the things that was, you know, born out of slavery, born out of Jim Crow, this, you know, disparate treatment. I mean, look at the fights with board, um, Brown v. v. Board of Education, the, you know, the mistreatment in education. But it, it's the idea that we have so much more to gain when we educate everybody, all of our children. You have no idea, you know, the power of our collective wisdom that we're leaving behind when we only propel some while tethering others. And so, yeah, you do need resources to do that. But again, that's not the sum total of racism. What you need to do at the same time, though, is we need to continue to have honest, candid, and yes, even painful conversations about why some of us are just comfortable with leaving others behind. Why there are those who just believe that, you know what, Black boys are just inherently barbaric. Black, little black girls are, you know, just inherently unable to grasp or understand certain concepts. We need not waste the resources pouring into them, their communities, It's you know, money not well spent. Why those are perhaps sentiments that are still alive and well today. Those are sentiments that money won't fix. Those are things that need to be addressed in different ways. Yes, funding is, I think, part of the equation. 
but it's not the sum total of everything. And quite frankly, I think what we've also learned is that some of the people who actually hold these views, and maybe not overtly, but covertly, but some of the folks who hold these views may also well be office holders. And that's unfortunate because they are also decision makers. And these are the things that need desperately to be addressed in order for us to genuinely move the ball forward. Because if we don't, we're holding back an entire generation. Again, Judge um, and Tom, my take on it, I mean, money does help, but money has to be placed in the right areas of each of these districts across the United States. So in my backyard, I have Amazon. Amazon has a fulfillment center. Amazon pays our district a healthy amount each year for 15 years because they came and we gave them a tax break. But those dollars that they gave us and those dollars they give like 25000 to our district to do this, to do that, it needs to be more funding for the appropriate um, uh, actual programs for the children. So say you're starting a grassroots and we're having problems at first graders or we're having problems with kindergarten. We should have some of that money, not money just coming into the district from giving them a tax break. They need to start. And I mean, if you really want to be a a person that you want to help the black and brown children, say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this program for um, for black and brown boys to know this or how to tie a tie or how to tie a shoe. Throw that money at programs that would help that actual city or district that's majority black get a better into education. You know, it, it's good to have the money. It's good for education, but we need to, mo- we need to do more, especially with I'm seeing in the racism in public education, along with our police system and other things. If we look back and we look back when um, Ruby Bridges was the first black little girl that went into that school down South and integration started, you know, it's a lot of people, Tom, that didn't want her to walk in an all-white school. She had to have five and six different police officers to walk her in a school to learn. And she got the yells and, and yeah, what are you doing in our school? Get out of here. But she made a precedent to walk across them steps and go into that school, not knowing all those little white uh, boys and girls, but she went in there and did it. You have to have things like that happen in America to change things. We can't change talking about it. I can't change going to Washington, D.C. and talking to all these board members in Ohio and across the country. Yeah, they're my friends and I got about 700 of them and we talk on a monthly basis, but I have to do more. Like that Minneapolis superintendent told me, we're not doing enough. And he's right. I'm not doing enough. All the things in three or four years, has it helped all the schools? Has it helped my school? Yeah. So it helped Warrensville. Okay, we're C C district school from an F. Yeah, we got programs. Yeah, people talking about us that we're the only school in Ohio that went from an F to a C in two years. The only public district out of 611 school districts. So yeah, I'm proud of that. But I got to take my proud and do something else for other people and help them. And like just said, you got to bring them up. You got to teach a little girl how to be a girl. You know, not oh, I want to listen to music or I want to go to a party. You have to do more, but we have to actually, um, we have to depend on our, our on our educators. One thing we did, and we came in with, with an F felon district, and you got your uh, actual staff time not filling it. You have to 
you know, you have to give them praise. I praise them. I have to be in the classroom like, oh, doing a great job, Mr. Jones. Oh, Mr. Jones, that's a great job. They need to hear that from board members. They need to hear that from people that live in that city saying, oh, this is Mr. Jones. Guess what he did? He took these 10 students and look what they did. So we have to do more. And I know I have to do more on a national basis. I mean, Ohio, yeah, we got great probably 12 or 13 districts that I'm I'm um, I'm going to talk to on a daily basis, but we have to do more. Thank you to both of you, Judge Spires, as always. Thank you, Ray Freeman. Thank you so much for talking about this uh, critical issue today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Judge. Thank you. And Tom, I always um, stand in great awe and appreciation for um, just your thoughtfulness and your openness and having, again, just more candid, open conversations about the intersection of race and um, and how it impacts just communities of color. Thank you for using your platform and your forum to continue to open the minds of so many who are willing to really understand how communities are impacted every single day, and particularly communities of color. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Ray Freeman, Vice President of the Warrensville Heights School Board and a member of the National School Board Association. We've been talking about racism confronting black children as they try to get an education. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.